0: What is this life if full of care We have no time to stand and stare No time to stand beneath the boughs And stare as long as sheep or cows No time to see when woods we pass Where squirrels hide their nuts in grass No time to see in broad daylight Streams full of stars like skies at night No time to turn at beauty's glance And watch her feet how they can dance No time to wait till her mouth can Enriched that smile, her eyes began. A poor life this, if full of care, we have no time to stand and stare.
1: Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And we're going to start with our sightings for the last couple of weeks. What have you seen, Ellie?
0: i've seen loads of things again we uh, we were driving through the countryside and we saw our first swallow of the year which yeah just is...
1: flying past wasn't it
0: yeah it was it looked a bit shocked because we've had like most people in the uk snow driving snow actually at one point it was horizontal wasn't it yeah it's been pretty mad
1: yeah so it's I... not april showers is it it's like april sleet snow lizards <laughs> yeah
0: so i think all these migrating birds that are coming back here for the summer are probably wondering why they've bothered yeah I would. <laughs> they're a bit early <laughs> No, in all, in all seriousness though, um, well, with something that we can all do to help the swallows, swifts and house martins that will be returning now is to actually, this is a bit of a gross thing, I, loved it. I love suggesting these things in wildlife gardens, but to put out a tray of wet mud because that's what they need to build their nests for the year.
1: Yeah, but the gross thing is that the ideal mixes wet mud mixed with a load of dung isn't
0: it yeah it's nice and sticky bit of manure yeah and a bit of lime thrown in for good measure if you can get hold of it but yeah it's it's been incredibly dry i know we just said it's been blizzing but obviously that's not rain water it's frozen water and it's just not in the quantities needed to make that ground nice and moist so if you can if you know you've got those birds then if you can put out a tray of wet mud with a bit of muck thrown in yeah. cow, <laughs> cow or horse don't think they're fussy then that could really help couldn't it
1: yeah, they use it to make their their nests, don't they? Basically, yeah. so yeah. we'll put a link in the show notes to that. That actually sort yeah. of a recipe.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else have we seen? We've well, seen quite... I've seen oh. uh,
1: hairy footed flower bee sex. Oh, that was exciting. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know what was going on because I didn't recognise the female. But you'd seen the day before I saw this. You'd seen was it Spring Watch? Yes, where had put online a, a video from a previous year, which is just hilarious because the male. He sort of attaches himself to the female, and then he does this sort of massage, stroking, dance thing. Which yeah. Is,
0: Why don't you do that? <laughs> okay. Too much too information. Much information. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys.
1: Um. No,
0: it, it, they are actually um, they're sexually dimorphous as well, aren't they? Dimorphic. Um, so the males and females look different, which I think you weren't aware of. Um, no. But the, the males have the sort of amber-coloured fur. They're obviously very furry. The hairy-footed flower bee gives that and away. a white
1: face as well.
0: With a little white... It looks like a little moustache, I think, yeah. on their face. But the females are more like a black bumblebee. They look
1: like a small bumblebee, don't they? Yeah. yeah like a worker.
0: And they've actually... Um, they do emerge later than the males as well. So I think that's why we've just noticed them. I think that this week in particular, the females have just woken up. And yeah, the males are all busy trying to get their attention.
1: Yeah, because the males sort of, they scout around and you see the female feeding on a flower and then the male uh, hovers behind it. And I just thought, because I actually saw three males going for one female. And I, I at first I thought it was bees attacking a wasp or something like that. Um, but then obviously I clocked what it is. So yeah, it's really cool. Oh, and we can link to that video as well.
0: Oh, yes, we think we should. Yeah, yeah, it was so you very you can see good. what's going on. Yeah, it's really amazing footage, as you'd expect from Spring Watch. Yeah. Um, Oh, what else have we seen? I feel like there's loads and then my mind's gone a bit blank. Oh, just loads of birds. Oh, Yellowhammer. That was good. Yeah. Yeah, we thought we
1: might. Well, I think I, I, I'm not counting this, but there's a possibility I saw a white throat as well. It was flying at, past the van
0: yeah, it was at speed wasn't it so yeah. it was a bit difficult to tell, but um yeah, things as we keep saying each week things really are waking up and now they're also coming back to the uk yeah. so things from further afield, so plenty of things to to be doing in the garden to encourage all of
1: that life yeah just be careful for oh one yeah this is one thing we've seen a lot of of um if you see a little mound of soil like a little volcano with a hole in the middle, then it's because the mining bees of which there are several species, are mining at the minute. So the female makes a, a burrow, doesn't she? Yeah, that's and right. And it looks like a little volcano. And yeah. we were thinking, we don't know if we've seen these before or if we've seen them and because we didn't know what they were, we just sort of assumed they were the beginning of ants' nests or something like that. But once you spot what they look like, you start to see them everywhere. And they've all come up in the last week, haven't they? So yeah, yeah just watch out in your gardens. If you do see this little mound with a hole in the middle just you know don't rake it over or something like that because there's yeah. probably a, a female bee uh, making a nest inside
0: yeah try and dig with care if you notice there's a patch of ground where these bees are mining i had to point out to a friend when i went for a walk this week that they're not tiny little mole hills no <laughs> <laughs> she thought yeah. possibly hi <laughs> tal sorry about that <laughs> um yeah lots and lots of things going on in the garden which is absolutely
1: lovely yeah, get out there, see what's out and about. And before we go on to the news, we just wanted to say thanks very much to some feedback we've had recently. Thanks to Ayrshire Foki on iTunes, for another the five-star review. And also to Sharon, who sent us um, a lovely message about what she's been up to um, via email. So she actually put one of our, well, it wasn't one of our ideas. It's something we talked about from Kate Bradbury's book, which was The Hoverfly Lagoon idea she's actually built one of those in her garden yeah. so this yeah. is
0: actually one of the like more disgusting things that we've told people to do <laughs> isn't it so as well as this tray of dung and muds, the hoverfly lagoon is
1: it's not disgusting
0: i know i don't it's just mean that, that. It,
1: you get the rat-tailed maggots in it yeah. which are the maggots of a of a wonderful native hoverfly
0: it's a very easy thing to do and it's really good fun when you see that these things are actually attracted to these different habitats
1: yeah yeah exactly so yeah Sharon if you actually do find any of these rat-tailed maggots in your lagoon please do uh yeah get in touch and, and send us a photo as well yeah if you're listening let us know what you found in your gardens if you want to drop us a line you can send us an email to garden at hotmail.com and as always every iTunes review is great and it um Well, it just helps us be promoted to new listeners as well. Uh, Onto the news, is it?
0: Yes. And this week, the news is, we're we're actually both going to be talking about the same topic. You'll probably have noticed it's been all over the media, but we are now embarking on peat-free April, which is a really lovely thing for the horticultural industry to do in general. Yeah, so we've we mentioned Pete before in a very early episode and about why we should all be gardening without it. And it's been something that the government has, has actually been setting its own targets for for, oh goodness, ages and ages, years well, and years. Well,
1: they set a target, miss it, set a target, miss yeah. it. Yeah. And we're we're past the last target. The target was 2020. Yeah, the final one. And obviously, we're way past that now.
0: Yeah. So this idea of peat-free April's come about, which is very, very welcome. The RHS has been publishing loads of stuff on this this week. And we just want to jump on the bandwagon, I guess, and get people using peat-free growing media, don't we?
1: Yeah, that's right. There's uh, a bunch of different Professional gardeners, academics, gardening organisations have come together and they've made a website called peatfree.org.uk. And on there, there's just an open letter that they've all signed and sent to the government to say, you know, why we should be going peat free. Um, But then they're also uh, making a really, really big push on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter as well, to try and build some pressure about this. And as part of this letter, they want, or they're demanding, all peat-based composts are banned by the end of this year. Who knows if that will happen, but the only way it will happen is putting pressure on the government, really. So, yeah, well done to them.
0: Yeah, and if you have happened to have missed all the media on this um, so far, why should you be going peat-free? Well, it's easy to look this up, but in general, at where we get our peat from are very, very, very sensitive habitats.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, there's two ra- main reasons, isn't there? Actually, wet peat bogland that hasn't been drained. Is a a a really vital wildlife habitat, Mm -hmm. Um, and the second one is that peat bogs hold more carbon per hectare, acre, whatever you want to say, than forests. Yeah, they're really Um,
0: fantastic carbon stores. So to dig it up is very, very counterintuitive in a world where we're trying to reduce our carbon production.
1: To dig it up, drain it, burn it, whatever we are doing to it, it's all the wrong thing. It should just stay where it is
0: (laughs) it should indeed we've been actually peat free when we buy compost we never ever get bags um, that contain peat and the thing is when you go to a garden center it can be very confusing i think it has been up until now maybe but generally if the bag doesn't say that it is a peat free growing media then it probably does have some peat in it
1: it absolutely does if it doesn't say peat free no it's got peat in it for sure
0: yeah so look for that labeling that's really important that's the first thing you can do the second thing there is, there are lots of myths aren't there about peat free from historical use of it and maybe from the fact that it's it's in development now really isn't it it's yeah. is something that
1: recipes are still changing aren't yeah,
0: they yeah it's no different to like cooking something and getting getting the recipe right and tweaking it over <laughs> yeah. over time but the fact is that peat has been until now just such a great growing media for you know our horticultural industry that we've all become a bit hooked on it but the peat free industry is is trying to replicate the pro- the properties of peat but through different processes where we don't have to dig that precious
1: peat up. Well so peat is good for for one main reason really and they call it it's buffering capacity and that is the buffering capacity is the ability of something to resist change. So what it means is if it's dry or wet the pH doesn't change yeah, and the availability inert, yeah the availability of nutrients doesn't change whether it's dry or wet stuff like that. So that's why they use it. And that's why it is good um, as a horticulture, not good. It's why it's effective as a, in horticulture. So it has taken a while to find suitable alternatives that can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But like Ellie said, the recipes are there now. Yeah, um, we, we've
0: tried a range of different brands. Again, we're not going to go into loads of detail about them right now, but the key message we want to put across is why not use this p- particular peat-free April to try a range of peat-free products and then yep. you can choose the one that works best for you and I listened to the RHS podcast this week and it, they're also talking about this and it is just true that you have to get used to using the different media in the same way as anything else It's a, it's, a, it's got different properties so don't try it fail and then think it's something to do with the product it is all about us relearning how to actually use that that different media so
1: yeah and I think well something that's really worth saying is there's two types of composts. I I don't want to make this sound complicated but the sort of compost you used to buy in a bag that was made of peat is something that in the trade they would call a growing media Mm -hmm. and that means it's Basically, it's made from virgin materials and the recipe is exactly the same bag to bag. You know you know exactly what you're getting and it tends to be really light and it's easy to keep watered and all, all this sort of stuff. And there are peat-free alternatives that are like growing media. So particularly brands like Melcourt, is a great one their silver grow line it's absolutely fantastic stuff i would really recommend it and you
0: can go on their website to see where that particular brand is stocked as well that's right
1: yeah and it's used by professionals it's used by some of the rhs gardens in their propagation isn't it and it's also used by well we saw it we went on a fruit tree pruning day down at the national fruit center at brogdale and they use melcourt to propagate all of their their fruit bushes and all their trees as well yeah it's so, really good yeah if uh, yeah. it's good enough for them it's good enough for us isn't precisely. it precisely yeah but there's a second type of compost which is more like compost you would buy in bulk or the sort of green waste compost that the council makes or actually that you would make at home it's an actually composted material so it's green waste that's been turned into a compost that's a true compost which is different to taking something like peat or coir something like that and just adding nutrients to it which is what would make a growing media which as i say is replicable bag to bag one thing i think people sometimes get wrong is you might if you buy a bag of compost and you open it up and it doesn't look anything like the old peat compost you used to buy and it's full of woody stuff big lumps then it's probably including some of this actual composted green waste and that's absolutely fine for potting with and absolutely fine for planting plants into the ground with but it's probably a bit too coarse for sowing seeds into and it might be too rich as well so if you are sowing seeds try and look out for one of these brands that um, is more like a, a traditional bag of peat based compost so like we say things like melcourt do that but there's products like this coming onto the market all the time And when we went to our local nursery just a couple of weeks ago, we actually saw... They used to stock one bag of peat-free, didn't Mm -hmm. they? Yep. And then it was two brands. And now they've got eight, including an ericaceous one for acid-loving plants. I think we put
0: a link to that on it, or a photo of it at least on our business page, because I was so excited. Yeah.
1: Well, I put it on Twitter for Peat-Free April as well. Like Ellie said, buy a couple of these bags... And find which ones work for you. You know, find a light one that is uh, going to be good for seed sowing and the heavier ones are probably better for, for planting into the ground with. And for mulching. And for mulching, exactly which right. It's very yeah.
0: important in this very dry spring we ha- we're having. Yeah, another just final point to make, I guess, is also that what we do at home is also extremely different to what the general wider horticultural industry do. And it is still a sad fact that... It is much, much easier for um, big nurseries to be producing plants using peat-based compost. So when we all go out to a garden centre and buy our plants, it is very, very likely to be grown in peat compost.
1: Yeah, again, if it's not labelled as peat-free, it's definitely been grown in peat.
0: Yes, but to to start the ball rolling on moving away from that, the writer, editor and Guardian columnist, Nick Wilson, has actually compiled a list of all the peat-free nurseries out there in the UK. So if you're really, really concerned about this, which hopefully most of you are, then you can actually look at that list and choose to buy your plants from those those nurseries. And the more of us that do that also gives a stronger message to the people that are growing plants that this is what people want as well
1: that's right so please do encourage these peat-free nurseries mm-hmm. Um, do buy from them and have a look at the list because um, nick's list is all the ones that she's been able to find and people have told her about but if there's more that you don't see on the list please get in touch with her and ask her to add it to the list as well
0: yeah start revolution yeah <laughs> so as always All the links to everything we mentioned in today's episode are going to be put up in the show notes. So please do go and have a look, including that list of peat-free nurseries. But also last week we did put out this bonus episode and we introduced our GoFundMe, Get the Wildlife podcast, some gear. And as we said in that episode, we're not trying to earn money from this podcast, but we are just trying to cover the costs of the equipment that we've bought and also to enable us to get out and about and give you some really good interviews with interesting people in the wildlife and horticultural world. So in one week we've actually raised ten percent of our target thanks to some very, very generous people out there. So So thank you. And in particular, Jenna, Jane, Clark, Hugh, Kumi and Caroline. Thank you to all of you for your donations. And if you're listening to this and you fancy giving us a little bit of a helping hand, anything really, a quid uh, it's all very useful and it helps us cover our costs. So we really, really appreciate it. Have a look at the show notes. The GoFundMe link is in there and help us keep the podcast going.
1: Brilliant. And now we're going to talk about our book club this week, which is the Wildlife Pond Book by Jules Howard. And is it published by Bloomsbury, wasn't it, with the Wildlife yeah. Trust yes, as well? That's right. And I'm about to learn here because I haven't had time to read
0: it. Yeah, this is why we've made an extension on our book club. Because, well, there's there's two of us and we've only ever got one book. So if I take ages to read something, which I sometimes do... Well, you
1: haven't this time. You've speed read it.
0: Yeah, but only because I left it to the last minute. So I'm really sorry, Jules. (laughs) it's a really really good book
1: yeah um yeah i will be reading it i'll be learning now (laughs) but then i'll be reading it in the next week but yeah as as we said in the in the bonus episode the the book club is now going to be every eight weeks instead of every four weeks isn't it So it's a bit more yeah give me time to read it as well yeah So, so um here we go i'm about to learn
0: i have been in reading this book on an absolute voyage of discovery it is utterly brilliant i loved it and it's Well, I don't know if it's just because I'm particularly geeky, because I particularly love ponds, or because I didn't know enough about ponds before I read it.
1: Or all of it together?
0: Probably a mixture of all of it, but it is also a really, really well-written book. The book starts really, really generally and gives a fantastic level of context about ponds in general and their history, which I really, really enjoyed. It starts very usefully with what is a pond, which... It's actually something I hadn't really considered before. You just kind of, it's one of those things you grow up knowing and you, when you try and give a definition, you're like, oh, hang on a minute. So Jules says that it's anything between one metre square to two hectares of water and that water's got to be there, standing water, I should say, and that water's got to be there for at least four months of the year.
1: So bigger than a puddle, smaller than a lake.
0: Precisely, but then puddles do sort of count as well. And in the book, he does also mention... Uh, Puddles being really useful habitats for various creatures. Oh, nice. Yeah. Within this, he also talks about the historical context of ponds. Now, obviously, when we build a pond in our garden, it's, we, we're always told that it's a very, very good thing to do for wildlife. And obviously, I'll be talking about that in a few minutes. But why? what, where, what happened before humans actually made them? Now, there's absolutely this. I love this bit so much, but it talked about how in nature, ponds would have been formed by all manner of different things. For example, beavers. And that's actually something that hopefully we'll see more of because beavers are now being reintroduced into the countryside. But they do produce magnificent ponds and everyone knows that as a keystone species they actually create habitat for other a myriad of other species.
1: Yeah they've been looking at beavers as part of uh, Spring Watch and Winter Watch didn't they last year? They have indeed. Yeah amazing.
0: Hooked. They're really lovely creatures but it can also be formed by from something as simple as a tree falling down the wood. Now that obviously happens less and less now that we manage our woodlands and we tend to chop down trees before that can happen but just in terms of the context of how ponds would move around the landscape without human interaction is just a really useful way of visualizing how nothing really stays that still in nature and where one pond might dry up over time another one might form just nearby so all the critters living in that one that's dried up can move across
1: yeah because if they fill up with vegetation so high that it's just slightly higher than the bit next door to it Then the next orbit will become the pond, won't it? Precisely, and we just don't see that over a human timescale. Sometimes, no, it's something that Oliver Rackham talks about in his book, which we mentioned in the last episode. If you stood back and could watch your landscape change over, you know, hundreds of years, you would see things moving around of their own accord, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, nature very rarely stays still, and Mm. I think our brains can't often compute that. So, why are they important? Well. Two thirds of Britain's entire wetland plant and animal species exist in freshwater ponds. So that is a huge number. That's amazing. What, or a so, huge proportion, rather, and in many... freshwater ponds. Yeah.
1: So that's more than well obviously more than rivers and streams and estuaries wow yep
0: many of those are actually near threatened or threatened and that's why when we build a pond in our garden we can create a really rich network of these habitats and increase that area for those species to thrive now it's very fair to say that they're very rich ecosystems but why are they rich well, first of all, water is needed by so many creatures, vi- like visitors and residents alike. So it just makes sense to provide it. And by doing that, you're enhancing the habitat. But also because, and, and Jules Howard actually compares them to this, they're as complex as a tropical rainforest or a mangrove or a coral reef or something like that in their complexity. And that is purely because if you think of it in a 3D sense then they have so many different ecological niches within them so obviously you've got different water depths you've got different all that tangled mess of roots gravel different depths of sediment all these different things create so many different niches for so many different species to be able to live side by side so yeah their richness is just it cannot be uh, celebrated enough and to add to that it's A home for some creatures it's a feeding station for other creatures it's a drinking station for things that are passing through it's a breeding ground for some things it's also a bathing opportunity if you think of all the birds that need to condition their feathers and also as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode it can also provide building materials so for things like swallows, house martens and swifts, which need wet mud to build their nests, if you've got a boggy patch at the edge of your pond, then that's brilliant. If it's ready made, you don't need to make your little tray of dung and mud. <laughs> <laughs> So while most new pond owners, it's fair to say, are fairly obsessed with frogs, toads and newts. You see this all the time on various uh, gardening forums on Facebook.
1: When As are, you should be. When
0: when are the frogs arriving? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you should be excited about the arrival of these amphibians. And they're a really useful part of the pond ecosystem. However, I will also say there is a dizzying complexity beneath that, which also needs to be celebrated So yeah, I in general would recommend this book for its ability to both portray this crazy complexity around ponds as well as their historical context, but also to keep it simple enough and engaging enough as a book for anyone to understand. So if you're planning on making a new pond, then 100% consider getting a copy of this book because it just contains everything you need to know. So within the book, there is a fairly large chunk on exactly how you build a a pond in your garden and that's through uh, a small one like a patio pond which is often raised up off the ground and could be in a container even through to a medium and then it also talks about much much bigger ponds uh, over 10 meters squared and what I found really useful about that section not only is does it go into all the details and considerations that you need to make but he also mentions how much it's likely to cost you in in pounds
1: yeah that's really good to know
0: it is and when we've um when we've been asked to quote for ponds it is something that sometimes comes as a bit of a surprise just because people have absolutely no idea but I would say that no matter how much you end up spending on your pond it really is such a worthwhile investment for both your enjoyment of it the wildlife's enjoyment of it and also quite often these things can last up to 20 years or more if you if you build it correctly so in terms of the annual cost it's really nothing yeah
1: I mean that's something that is worth saying you know if you've only got a really small area please do just go ahead and have a you know read the book have a pond in a a raised container in a plastic bucket whatever if you are going to put a pond into the ground though and you're going to go to the the extent of buying a proper liner and all that sort of stuff it does pay to do it properly the first time because if you skimp on the underlay or something like that and you get a puncture then you're going to have to redo it so it's worth doing it right first time isn't it really
0: It is indeed. And also to maximise that money you spent and to make it as rich and valuable for wildlife, there are absolutely loads and loads of different tips um, in this book. So that includes having a variety of edging. Lots of wildlife ponds you'll see edged with rock all the way round. But actually, as with most wildlife gardening, having variety is the most important thing. So when we install a wildlife pond now, we tend to have maybe some rock edging. We, we tend to have some gravel edging. And we also really like putting in vegetation. So actually having grass running right the way up to the pond edge, which you then, then can let grow tall. And it sort of just merges in with the pond plants then and just looks, well, it becomes very naturalized. And is really, really good um, for wildlife because things can hide in that vegetation. As well as having that variety of edging, it's also a really good idea to have a variety of surfaces under the water. And Jules Howard talks about having rocks submerged on the south-facing side of your pond because the sun will hit those rocks, warm them up, which will encourage things like tadpoles, which need that, that, the warmth of the sun to actually warm up in the morning and get themselves going. To hang out on those rocks, but also the extra algae that's growing on those rocks becomes really good food for them. So they become like a grazing site, which I just, I did not know that before
1: no that is a great tip
0: that's a really good tip in addition having a variety of depths is also a really good thing not only for the wildlife but also to be able to grow different plants because different plants like to grow at different depths of water which can make it an even richer habitat so when we build a pond we quite often build a shallow shelf all the way around the outside and that not only provides that you know that space for plants to grow and things to warm up and bask but also it improves access and egress for things that might jump or fall into your pond like hedgehogs. And we also tend to put in a beach area, which will also be a graded slope up to the edge of the pond. Now, a lot of people include these beaches and they do look really good as well. If you're sitting next to it on a bench or whatever, you just it just looks very aesthetically pleasing. But something that I did not know is that this area, and this is the bit of the pond where it does tend to dry out, is called the drawdown zone. And it comes with its own benefits as well. And when you're actually planning your pond, this drawdown zone is really important because, well, first of all, you need to consider that, Maybe you need it to look pretty when there's slightly less water in the pond but also you can you can create sort of indentations within it so you're almost creating mini lagoons so that when that water does evaporate down you end up with these shallow pools in that drawdown zone which is really good for a number of different invertebrates
1: that live in the pond. That's really cool that's like almost like rock pools
0: and and some of those creatures actually do better in those lagoons because sometimes the bigger predators within the pond can't physically live in those smaller pools so oh yeah of course in the same way that coastal rock pools work as well
1: that's nice
0: it is and finally as another general thing outside your pond you know everything else in your garden can be enhanced to also make your pond an even richer habitat so this is again down to creating as much variety of habitat in your garden as possible And you need to be including things like corridors. So I think Ben mentioned a couple of episodes ago that in one garden where we did put a pond in, we've just recently drilled a hole in the fence to enable frogs and toads to actually access the garden because we realised that they couldn't. So, yeah, if you're wondering why you're not getting any amphibians, then maybe it's something as simple as they just can't get into, into your garden. It's all about having some areas of long vegetation. It's all about having wood piles so that different insects and and all those amphibians and things can actually hang out in the summer when they're not using that water.
1: Yeah, because a lot of the things that are using the water aren't in the water all the time time. or even all of the year.
0: Yeah. Another thing to consider is trees and Actually, they're really important because if you're trying to encourage birds to be using your ponds, then birds also need trees to perch in. In the book, Jules talks about critter curtains as well. And this is just old squares of carpet that you can just lay down on the ground and they keep a nice moist but warm environment underneath them which attracts all kinds of invertebrates and becomes a really good place for things to hide and that that just increases the amount of food for things that might be living in your pond to come out and eat so yeah there's absolutely loads you can do in your garden to enhance that pond life that you're trying to bring in we often get asked a lot of questions about ponds and the same questions tend to pop up so I thought why not try and answer them using the content of this book? Now, the first one is How deep does my pond need to actually be? And this is something that uh, both of us, it depends on what you read, unfortunately. We in the past have read somewhere that it needs to be at least a meter deep to I'll prevent fraud. Full-
1: and heard it time and time again on Gardener's Question Time, on Gardener's World, various other places.
0: Now, this book actually uh, refutes that, and the depth given is fifty centimetres, so half of that meter. So now we actually put in somewhere in the middle. So we get we tend to go for about sixty to seventy-five centimetres.
1: Jules is an expert on this stuff, but then you hear other experts saying something different. So when you've got ten experts all giving you different answers we just go somewhere in the middle don't we yeah I think yeah that, that's so we, we go about 60 to 70 centimeters deep
0: the, the consideration to make with this is that variety is key as i said before with those shelves and and graded beaches and to consider that the surface of your pond so the surface area that is the lungs of the pond so that is where all the gaseous exchange happens is on that surface layer so surface is very important and then you do want it to be deep enough so that there's always some that that is unfrozen in the winter so about 75 centimeters or 60 yeah somewhere I mean, around something there something
1: they you often hear people say it needs to be a meter so it doesn't freeze over the winter but certainly in nottingham even during the beast from the east we didn't have any ponds that were frozen down to 70 centimeters did we i no. mean there, i'm sure there are parts of the country you know on the east coast of scotland or something like that that are going to get Really cold, you know, cold enough to freeze a, a 50 centimeter pond completely. But I just think in most of the UK, you're getting nowhere near those temperatures.
0: Another question is about cats. Now, cats are, as we've said before, voracious predators, killing machines of various creatures, including amphibians. And the only thing that I can really suggest when it comes to this is to make sure you've got loads of good bolt holes for those creatures. So putting in a high which is, as we've described before, just a hole in the ground full of stones and, and logs and then covered back over. Which so leaves
1: loads of gaps, doesn't it?
0: It leaves loads of gaps and, and things can actually just run away into those spaces Another question that's often asked is around children and water safety. Now, the critical age in terms of risk of drowning is around zero to two years for a child. And it is a very real risk. However, it is quite easily overcome by things like a fence, which you might even be able to put in as a temporary fence that might stay there for a couple of years until that child is old enough to understand the message not not to go jumping into the pond. But also having those beach areas can also help. On the flip side of that, ponds are an excellent learning resource for children and it is really easy to engage them. So don't be put off having a pond if you also have a child. Another question we often get is around pond maintenance. And some people have it in their minds that ponds are really, really hard work. I would like to put it out there that that is absolutely not the case or it's as much work almost as you want it to be. Now, a section of the book that I absolutely loved—it was quite a small section—just described how a pond like us ages over time if you leave it, and it's something I had covered in algae. It gets covered in algae. So, (laughs) so going back to this historical context where ponds used to just pop up and then and, and infill with things like leaf fall and things like that and sediment. Your garden pond is no different to one of those natural ponds. And if you left it over a a number of years, it would eventually just fill up and become a bog garden. As gardeners, we can actually choose, if we want to, to let that pond infill. And it will provide a certain habitat for a certain mixed species over a certain amount of time. However, I I do understand that if you have spent this money on this pond, you probably want to keep it going as a pond as, as long as you can. But even to do that isn't that much work. And all you really need to do is once a year to go in and thin out some of the vegetation because it can be quite vigorous. And also clear out some of the leaves that have fallen. We often actually also slow down that leaf litter accumulation by putting a net temporarily over a pond just to stop the autumn leaves from blowing in, because it can just make your life a lot easier.
1: Yeah, very temporarily, isn't it? It's just a couple of weeks, maybe yeah. a month.
0: You do have to be careful not to let wildlife get tangled up in the net, but as long as it's pinned down nice and firmly, then it, all the way around, fine. yeah. Because you around. don't want something yeah.
1: to get under the net and then not be able to get out again.
0: Yes, and it's really not that much work. Another question we get is around drought and whether or not it's a problem. As I mentioned earlier on, there is such thing as a drawdown zone in a pond, and that is just the area that is expected to dry out in periods of prolonged dry weather. Now, pond creatures have adapted over millennia to account for these periods of drought. And in general, up to a point, it's better just to leave your pond alone and just to let it dry out a little bit. Now, with climate change we do have increased periods of drought sometimes, and it can be very distressing to maybe see your tadpoles flailing around in the shallows of a of a baking dry pond. And if that is the case then and you're really desperate to fill your pond up again, then please do try and use water butt water, so that's rainwater, because it doesn't contain the chlorine and the nitrates of our tap water. Of course if you are in a drought you may not have the water but water to be able to do this so as an absolute last resort tap water might need to be used in those situations however if you are going to do that then please do fill up a few buckets let them stand for a couple of days to let the, to at least let the chlorine evaporate off and also to let the temperature of those of that water rise so that it, it better matches your pond water and only then put it in I mentioned winter and freezing a few minutes ago and as we said this is something that a lot of people do get concerned about. Again adaptation is a wonderful thing. Humans don't often understand that these creatures have existed probably for longer than us in in their current form and nymphs of things like dragonflies, damselflies and caddisflies can actually create antifreeze compounds in their cells so those guys are fine if you do get A little bit of ice on your pond. Also, things like back swimmers and water beetles use trapped air in leaf litter in the pond. So I know we just said about clearing leaf litter, but leaving some is, is essential. And oxygen can actually be trapped within that leaf litter that these creatures can use. That's cool. That is really cool. And... You probably remember from learning at school that frogs do hibernate and the way they do that is to move into your pond and they'll burrow down in the sediment-rich base of it, make a nice mud bed and their skin, being amphibians, becomes their lungs and they just breathe through their skin so they need some oxygen in that pond. When the surface is frozen over, oxygen levels can reduce. However, having some ice is not all doom and gloom what can be a problem is if you've got a combination of prolonged ice with then snow on top because the snow is what pre- prevents the sunlight from actually penetrating through into the pond which would then get to the vegetation which can keep photosynthesizing and producing oxygen and that can become a problem so to avoid that situation You can simply brush off the snow from on top of the ice. Or if you're really worried, you can float a ball in your pond and that can just slow the freezing over process as well.
1: The other thing I saw this winter was podcaster, another podcaster from Nottingham, Jack Perks, who runs the Bearded Tits podcast. He put a a video up on Twitter where he just boiled some water in a pan and he just walked out and he put the hot pan on top of his pond, Mm. waited until it was nearly through the ice, obviously not all the way through, just lifted the pan back off and then the ice just you know you made a big hole in the ice basically and it Excellent. was you only know, took him whatever it was 20 seconds you got a bit obviously you can't walk away and just leave the the, the pan to fall into yeah. the water but yeah i just thought that was a great idea it took hardly any time at all
0: now another thing that people often worry about is algae and there is a myth i think that all algae is bad and that you don't want this green in your pond However, I would say that toads and frogs, when they're trying to find new places to colonise, actually smell for algae because their tadpoles need it as a food source.
1: I didn't know that. I
0: know. I didn't know that either. That's
1: answered a question I've had for ages, which is how they they actually know there's water there.
0: They don't have little radars on their heads. Now, in springtime, you can get something called an algal bloom. And this is just where the temperatures are starting to rise again. The pond is waking up and the algae just it takes advantage of the extra sunlight and warmth and just starts to reproduce like mad. And sometimes this can actually make your pond appear cloudy, which is something we've seen in some ponds that we've put in. However, don't panic, as we always say. Because as well as tadpoles of toads and frogs, many, many invertebrates living in your pond actually rely on the algae as their food source. And really and truly, if you leave it a couple of days sometimes, the populations of those invertebrates rapidly comes up and essentially just eats the algae for you. So you don't need to do anything. So why you shouldn't panic if you do get this cloudiness or a little increase in algae in your pond Um, there are a couple that you should probably watch out for and I think a lot of people know about blanket weed the algae that forms these long filamentous strands like hair like slimy hair it's
1: like a wig when you dig when you uh, scrape it out of a pond
0: it is and yeah it can actually choke up your pond and in fact it's, it's actually an indication that you've got too much nutrient in that pond which may be because you've got a, a new pond that hasn't got a developed ecosystem or even if you've got a really old pond that is now filling up and is full of sediment and nutrient-rich leaf matter yeah,
1: we tend to find it most in ponds that we have had to fill with tap water
0: yeah but it is actually really easy to manage and all you need to do is periodically get a stick or a rake and just sweep it through the pond and this this blanket weed just collects around it and you can just leave what you've pulled out of the pond on the side so that all the creatures that might be tangled up in it can actually just crawl back into the pond and then you can just compost it as normal but that's enough about the work that's involved with the pond because actually it is really dead easy and the old adage Build it and they will come really does count in this situation, and the book really usefully describes the way all the different species and groups of animals move from pond to pond, which I think will put a lot of people 's minds at rest and, and they, it means they won 't need to go and collect frogs spawn from elsewhere because actually we really shouldn 't be doing that. There are a couple of viruses that are really bad for amphibians that can be moved around the countryside by people doing that. So just as a, a general overview as to how things colonise your water space, there are flying beetles which use their wings. There are ballooning spiders which use webs to actually be blown across the countryside looking for spaces to be able to colonise.
1: Yeah, and they, they use static electricity, don't they, to get their webs, these strings of silk up into the air and then they get blown off with them.
0: That was a Chris Packham special. Yeah. There are also eggs, particularly of snails that get stuck Mm. to the feet of birds.
1: You know, if there's no nearby pond, you think, how on earth did a water snail get there? They just turn up. And they're they're eggs, yeah, like Ellie said, on birds' feet.
0: And also some creatures like water mites actually externally parasitize other larger, more mobile species and just hitch a ride, which is really cool. And some eggs are so small, they actually just blow across the the countryside in the wind looking for no yep that's true and that's particularly true for some of the worms and worm-like creatures the eggs just blow in the air they just blow around we're probably inhaling them right now
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah think of that next time you go for a walk in the countryside
0: yep so i thought that We're not going to go into all the detail about the animals. Please do read this book. Chapter five is completely dedicated to all the creatures that you might see in your pond. But I thought it'd be quite fun just to pick out three wrongly maligned or little understood creatures in ponds in celebration of the little guys. Now, first of all, flatworms, which have a bad rep because we've all been told as gardeners to look out for the New Zealand flatworm and incomers and other alien species, which are really bad. And that is one that you need to look out for. But actually, Britain has 60 species of flatworm. A lot of them live under stones in your pond or amongst the leaf litter. What I liked about this is that while they can reproduce sexually, they actually have a preference for casting off their tails Regrowing a head or another tail, depending on which half is left.
1: Well, they do this. They just out of choice. Yep,
0: yeah, out of choice. I guess it's easier. Another one is midges. Most people in this country do think of the bitey Scottish midge, but actually, it's a hugely diverse group, and only one family are the biting variety. One of the first colonisers of a new pond is the chironomid fly, which is a non-biting midge. Its eggs hatch into something called bloodworms. Uh, it sounds vampiric, but they're actually only red because of how much iron is in their
1: bodies. Oh, is that right? It is. Because and, I've seen, I have seen blood worms. Oh, have you? I no, I thought it was. I thought they were just red, or it might have actually been the blood coming through a translucent skin or something. But no, it's, no, it's the
0: iron content in their bodies, which just enables them to live in really low oxygen environments. And finally, water fleas. Now they're so-called because of their diminutive size and their jerky movements. Um, They're actually freshwater crustaceans, which is a group that includes freshwater shrimps and water hog lice. (laughs) Some of the names of these are a bit off-putting. I don't know. I wish I could just change their common names. We have 80 species of water flea in Britain. But if you have a rapidly greening pond in spring, as we've mentioned, they are your friend because they feed on microscopic algae and bacteria. So they're one of the creatures that will come in and within a matter of days can just completely clear up that cloudiness. And again, they can reproduce clonally and therefore their populations can also really explode rapidly. So, yeah. They are your friend.
1: Well, yeah, the pond gardener's friend.
0: Indeed. So I'm going to leave it there in terms of content of the book, but hopefully we've provided you some good tips for your own pond. But please do go out and get yourself a copy of it because it is fantastic.
1: And of course, we always try to remember to say you can borrow it from a local library, possibly if they're open.
0: And finally, on Facebook, we've been sharing some book facts in advance of this episode. And one of our followers commented on my acting abilities because one of the posts included a photo of me looking amazed while reading this book now i have to say i didn't actually put that face on because <laughs> it really is a really fascinating book and as Eddie we said
1: like that jaw dropped wide open for about a straight week <laughs>
0: yes i've learned a lot definitely Um, but if you do want to follow us on facebook and twitter then please do Uh, on facebook we're facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast on twitter we're twitter.com forward slash the wild gdn and as we say we're going to put out book facts still and other things that we've seen and things we've been up to but please also do go ahead and tag us in a post and tell us what you've been seeing and what whether you've been putting in ponds in your
1: garden Yeah, whatever you see in your gardens, we'd love to uh, know about it. So yeah, contact us on there.
0: So I think following Book Club, we're now moving on to our native plant of the podcast, which Ben is going to take the helm for.
1: Yeah, this is one of my absolute favourite garden plants but we picked this one this week because it's a plant that often grows around ponds and in um, damp boggy areas and in a lot of books it's often recommended as a poolside plant or a, a bog garden plant as well and so the plant we're talking about this week is purple loosestrife the scientific name for purple loosestrife is lithrum salicaria it's in the Lythraceae family um, and the name lithrum comes from the greek word litron or lytron, meaning blood and that just indicates the pinky sort of purple red color of the flower of the plant. The Salicaria bit meanwhile means with a leaf like Salix because Salix is the scientific name for the willow tree as well. And the common name Loose Drive comes from a translation of the Greek name used by the Greco-Roman doctor Dioscorides who was recorded saying that the plant was used and it was believed that if placed on the yoke of inharmonious oxen it will restrain their quarreling. Um, so that's a good Tip for any dairy farms out there listening to the podcast <laughs> for those of you who don't know what it looks like, it's easy enough to look up online for a picture um, but I'll just give you a brief description. It's a herbaceous perennial which means it dies down every autumn but then it comes back the following year in the wild it grows between half a meter and two point seven meters tall.
0: That's much taller than I thought
1: I've never seen one that tall we we've seen them probably i don't know nearly as tall as me, what, of I don't meters. know what. Yeah, I don't know how tall I am in meters. Actually, <laughs> yeah, two point seven meters tall is the tallest that has been found. It's got square stems, and like I say, the Salicaria um, name comes from the fact that it's got willow-like leaves. Established plants have a number of different flowering shoots, which makes the plant have a sort of a broad head, and each of the actual flower spikes themselves can be up to one meters tall, and these spikes are called cymes. I think that's how you pronounce it. And that's a description of how the flower is. So it's a cyme because it has a flower at the top. So it's got this spike of flower, flowers all the way up the stem, which are arranged in whirls. So they go around the stem. But there is a an actual flower right at the very top. If it was a spike without a flower at the top, then it would be a raceme which is another botanical term.
0: Some good botanical terms there.
1: Yeah, I might make a botanical warning klaxon or something to add (laughs) into the podcast. Um, But yeah, as I say, along the spike, there's these wells of these lovely um, pink purple flowers that are symmetrical as well. Purple Loose Strife is found across the UK, although it's a bit sparse in northern Scotland. And it's also native to Central and Southern Europe, across the Mediterranean to Tunisia, Algeria, Ethiopia and Morocco, uh, right through to the Middle East via Syria, Afghanistan and Iran, and then even onto Russia, Mongolia and Japan. Another big range. Yeah, an absolutely huge range. And despite this range where it actually grows quite happily amongst other flora, it wasn't native or isn't native to North America. It has been introduced there. But unlike over most of Eurasia, where it grows quite happily with other plants, in North America it's become a really bad invasive weed and a huge amount of effort goes in in the USA and in Canada to actually eradicating uh, purple loosestrife from wetlands there where it's become a really, really big problem. So if you are an American or Canadian listener, maybe you shouldn't plant this um, in your gardens. Well, I was actually looking at um, some of our statistics on the podcast the other day, and we are the 146th most popular home and garden podcast in Canada. So,
0: Thanks, Uncle Pete and Aunt yeah. Victoria.
1: <laughs> yeah, turns out you only need three listeners in Canada to get into the charts. But it was thought it was either brought into North America in ships ballast, and they would have scraped up wet sand um, from tidal areas for ballast for the ships and then when they got into North America they would have dumped it that sort of sand would have been accompanied by loosestrife seed so it was either introduced that way or it was brought in by migrants who took seed with them to use as a medicinal herb or both of course in the wild in the UK though it's generally found in wet and marshy areas below 600 meters above sea level It's commonly found in car woodlands, which is a type of wet woodland dominated by alder and by willow. Uh, That's C-A-R-R. It grows all around Nottinghamshire, where we see it regularly, uh, including at Attenborough Nature Reserve, if anybody's making a visit there this summer. And indeed there, it's uh, present in a lot of these sort of wet woodlands that surround the main um, lagoons and the main ponds as well. That's
0: where we've seen the biggest specimens, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right by the
1: water. So as I say it grows all over the UK and you are likely to see it so if you do come across it what you might want to know is about the sexual antics of the purple loosestrife okay purple loosestrife is an outcrossing hermaphrodite which as we know has both the male and female organs present within each flower There is a lot of variation between plants. You know, it's got such a huge range, so it's it's not surprising that there's variation. But a typical flower has uh, six petals, and the number of stamen are always double the number of petals. So usually, a normal plant would have six petals and 12 stamen. It prevents self-pollination, though, by being... And I'm going to put the botanical klaxon on again here. (laughs) By being heterostylous, and in this case, tristylous. So to explain what this means, you will remember in a previous episode that we talked about primroses with their pins and thrums, the two different forms of of flower that primroses have which prevent self-fertilization. And at the time, I think we said this was quite a unique way that primroses do this. Turns out that's a load of rubbish and loads of plants do this. And we've been learning this as we go along. We really are learning as we do this podcast. So primroses, where they have these two forms, they are dye stylus. So that's two forms, or what are called morphs, of arrangements of the sexual organs within the flowers. So while primroses have two, purple loosestrife has three. So like I say, primroses are di-stylus, but purple loosestrife is tri-stylus. And like primroses, this interesting characteristic was actually investigated by Charles Darwin as well. He was
0: a very busy man.
1: Yeah, he was. (laughs) So purple loosestrife has these three different types of flower, or morphs of flower, where individual plants exhibit one of three different arrangements of pistils and stamens within their flowers. And we've talked about some of these terms before, but pistil is the term for the entire female organ. So that's made up of the stigma at the top, which receives pollen. It's held on a tube called the style, down which pollen travels. And that pollen goes down to the ovary, which is at the bottom. So the ovary, the style, and the stigma together or what is called a pistil. A stamen is the term for the entire male organ. So that's made up of the anther at the top. And that's the bit that produces the pollen. And that anther is held on a stalk called the filament. And while I was writing this, I had to check this again, because both of us (laughs) forget this every time, don't we?
0: One way I've come to remember is that in the word men is in the word stamen, and if you can remember that, then you can always remember that it's the male part of the
1: flower. Exactly. The stamen is the entire male organ, and the pistil, we, we don't really have a mnemonic for that, do we? But
0: No, I need to think about that one.
1: No, but the, yeah, the pistil is the name for the whole female organ. So in purple loosestrife, within the flower, the male and female organs in these three different ways are arranged like a trifle. In one morph, so that's one form of the flower, the style, which again is the tube which the pollen goes down in the female organ, is short. So the whole female part is at the bottom of the flower. And on top of that, there are two individual layers of male organs. In a second morph, there's a layer of male organs at the bottom of the flower, with the female part in the middle and another layer of uh, males on the top. And finally, there is a morph with two separate layers of males at the bottom and with the female on top. And these are simply called the short, medium and long styled morphs.
0: Ben would choose to describe this as a trifle because that is his favourite dessert.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've been dreaming of (laughs) trifle. Generally, pollination is only successful if pollen is transferred from one plant, from one morph to another, hence being an outcrossing hermaphrodite. And the outcrossing bit is where two different flowers are needed to pollinate each other. One interesting quirk of these different morphs, though, is the colours. Where the male filaments are longest, they tend to be bright pink. And the anther on top, the bit that produces the pollen, is purple. But where they're short, both the filament and the anther tend to be green. And where the filaments are long, with this purple anther, the anthers produce green pollen. And where they're short, they produce yellow pollen. So the male parts of this flower seem to be wearing a sort of technicolour dream coat thing, <laughs> where they're sort of, yeah, all sorts of shades of the rainbow. And finally, when pollinated, the flowers produce seed which is held in a capsule, and each capsule holds between 90 and 130 seeds. And you've got to keep in mind that a single stem can produce 90 to 1,000 capsules, and an established plant has many stems. So in one scientific paper I read, it was estimated that a a typical individual plant could produce 2.7 million seeds.
0: Which explains its success in colonising North America so quickly. Yeah, that's right. Goodness.
1: Yeah, I mean... That's
0: difficult to control.
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of things to do with its interaction with the soil, which means it's not so invasive here. But there's just something it really likes about North America. And while in North America, that's not great for wildlife... Where it is native, then it is a wonderful plant for wildlife and especially wildlife in your garden. Pollination of the purple loosestrife is generally by bees and butterflies, but also by beetles, probably by flies, in particular some of the hoverflies. I read that it's thought that flowers are attractive to any species with a proboscis, and I should say in one episode we called a proboscis a proboscis but I have corrected myself now. So the flowers are thought to be attractive to any species with a proboscis of six millimetres or longer. That's what I read in one of these scientific papers. But then when I was looking up records for um, species that have been recorded actually visiting as a pollinator, these, these flowers, there was a huge variety of records including beetles um, which obviously don't have a long proboscis generally some of the hoverflies as well which actually sort of just dab um, flowers rather than um, reaching in with this straw-like appendage. The Natural History Museum records it as being the host plant for thirty-one Lepidoptera alone, which are just the moths and butterflies. And that includes the stunning small elephant hawk moth, which is a really beautiful, it's like a day glow um raver sort of a moth, isn't it? So you've got
0: the Technicolor Dreamcoat flower, the the day glow raving moth. This is really quite a colourful uh...
1: assemblage.
0: It is, yeah, thanks.
1: Nice. <laughs> It's the food plant for the larvae of type of sawfly, um, for some of the frog hopper bugs as well, and a whole host of beetles, like the loose dry flea beetle. And the Latin name for the loose dry flea beetle is um, Lithraria salicariae.
0: This is like a, a really fun tongue twister <laughs> yeah. for Ben to be getting his mouth. Yeah, so from. you
1: get the Lithraria salicariae visiting the Lithrum salicaria. <laughs> <laughs> But as I say, it's also recorded as being visited by a load of hoverflies, including the fantastically named marmalade hoverfly mm. and bees galore too as well. they Lots of different bees, solitary and bumblebees, uh, adore it. So all around, it is a absolutely top plant for wildlife. And if you're convinced and you want to grow it at home yourself, I'll just give you a few details on how to grow it as a garden plant. It's fully hardy, so it will grow anywhere in the UK and it's perennial. So it'll come back every year. The flowers start around June and in a good year can carry on right till September. Um, So yeah, it's a really good plant for late summer colour. And although it will grow in most soil types... Um, with a pH from 4 to 9.1 actually, which is very alkaline. It's
0: almost caustic. Yeah, alkaline. So,
1: so that's nearly all, all UK soils really fit within that range. It will do best in a soil that is kept moist, so that's where it would grow naturally. So yes, you can get it to germinate and you can plant it in sandy, light soils, but you would really have to be committed to the watering if you wanted to do that. So it's probably just an easier plant to grow in loamy or in clay soils with that has been improved with some compost. Or of course, planted around a pond, as I've said, or as part of a bog garden as well. It needs 13 hours of daylight to start the that extension growth that creates this flower spike. And believe it or not, in a British summer we do get 13 hours of daylight on a normal day. And that's, you know, daylight length, not actually direct sunlight. But it won't flower well unless it's got. of full sun and that's how it was described in one of the papers I read and it might be a good time to mention what full sun actually means and this actually was mentioned on gardeners the latest episode of gardeners world I think as well Um, so whenever full sun is mentioned by the rhs or on a plant label it actually means at least six hours of direct sunlight so that is actually in the sun not shaded not just in an open position but six hours with the sun right on the plant whereas partial or semi-shade means three to six hours so as I say, it's recorded as needing 50% of full sun. So that's basically saying, unless you have three hours of direct sun, it won't flower well for you. You could grow it in sandy soil in the shade. It will grow, but as a garden plant, you want lots of flower and you're growing it for that beautiful pink flower and the colour. Um, so yeah, if you've got a loam or clay soil that you can keep damp and you've got somewhere that's going to be in full sun for at least three hours a day, give it a go. If you want to get some, you can grow it from seed. Um, You can buy seed to grow. It's best sown between late March and early May. And the plant will actually flower in its first year. Flowering takes about eight to 10 weeks from germination. But in the first year, it will just put up one spindly little flower spike. So don't be disappointed if you've grown it from seed and it it looks a bit ratty for the first year. Um, Just keep growing it on and it will bulk up and then you'll get all these flower spikes come at the same time. It doesn't appear, like some of the other seeds we've talked about before, to need a cold period for germination, as fresh seed has been found to germinate pretty well. So yeah, you could go ahead and buy seed now from a wildflower supplier, or you could wait until autumn when the seed's available, and you could just go and collect some of the seed. As I say, it's a fairly common plant, and you know if one plant is producing 2.7 million seeds, <laughs> um, I think there's plenty of seed around for you to take your share. If you do go and collect the seed in the autumn, just keep it uh, in a dark and cool place. And then, like I say, you can sow it in the following spring. When you do sow it in these temperatures of between 14 and 20 degrees to germinate well, so sow it on top of a a moist seed compost. And then, you know, you can keep it on a warm windowsill or in a propagator, heated propagator. Or if you're sowing it a bit later in the year, you know, sort of mid-April to early May, it might be warm enough outside, especially in a cloche. So you could just you could leave it outside covered. Um, But that depends on the weather, because as I've been recording this podcast, it's gone from sun to snow, hasn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's completely mad today.
1: So one thing you need to look out for, though, is that it doesn't germinate well if it's been covered with too much soil. It's the sort of plant that will grow in disturbed ground. So, um, yeah, it only likes a light covering. So, yeah, sow it on top of this compost and just give it a, a very thin layer of compost over the top. And then if you keep it moist, and as I say, keep it warm, then germination should be pretty quick. The second way, of course, if you don't want to wait for it to germinate, to grow, and then to bulk up, is to dig up an established plant in a garden, if you've got a friend who's got some. Or, of course, if you've already got it and you want to establish more, you can dig it up and split it and now is an absolutely perfect time to do that you know if you're digging up a big established plant you could split it into a couple of different good sized clumps and then you just simply replant it again it's a completely free way to build up your own stock at home but you know if you've got a friend with some you can always ask for some as well and uh you know it's a good excuse now we can all visit each other in our gardens you know just nip round with the excuse of wanting and to have a steal bit of their... your
0: friends plants <laughs> yeah no to give people plants <laughs>
1: Um, don't just turn up with a fork no (laughs) yeah so but we always give our um our disclaimer that although it's a common plant please don't just go up and dig it from the wild so that's two ways to propagate it at home but you know you can always just go out and buy it of course and the wild species the um the one that just grows around and is native you can buy that from lots of wildflower suppliers as a as an established potted plant but there are also some cultivated forms as well And the benefit of some of the cultivated forms is that they can be a bit shorter, probably a bit more manageable as a garden plant. A lot of them, the actual flower spikes only grow up to about a metre, 1.2 metres tall, something like that, which, well, it depends how big your borders are, but I would think that most people don't want a 2.7 metre tall um, loose strife in their garden. It might dwarf everything else a bit. So just to give you a couple of varieties that um, are recommended by the RHS, uh, there's a very bright pink one called Modern Pink. Uh, there's a, a a tall but upright one if you if you've got a, a narrower space for something to fit in called and i think this is a german name so i'm gonna massacre it but i think it's called Feuerkurser. again links in the show it's notes better
0: than your greek pronunciation today <laughs> <That's
1: true>. <laughs> <laughs> And there's also a really lovely pale pink one called Blush. And I would love one of those in my garden. I think it's really beautiful. Um, And both Foyer, Curzer and Blush both hold the RHS's Award of Garden Merit as well, which shows them as really good doers as garden plants. Wonderful. So I really recommend everybody goes out. And if you've got the conditions that it will suit, have a think about Purple Loose Strife for your gardens.
0: So that just about wraps up today's episode and before we say goodbye we were just going to give you a, a little summary of what's to come. Well we're very excited because this Tuesday we are going to be interviewing Gareth Richards as we've said before. He is the RHS digital features editor and he is an all-round garden genius and wonderful friend. Um, he's going to be talk- talking to us all about wildlife on his allotment.
1: Yeah as we said in the bonus episode we don't have an allotment so it'll be really interesting to hear his uh, ideas on what you can do for wildlife on one.
0: Yes. And also we're excited because we're going to be following the afternoon in the pub. (laughs) Yes, That episode is actually going to be released on May the 12th. So that's in two episodes time from this one. The next episode, we're going to be talking about the upcoming No Mo
1: May. Yeah, we're getting in there in advance of it.
0: Yeah. So we've had Peat Free April, No Mo May. And if some of you have done this before, it just involves not cutting your grass for a month and seeing what comes up. And we're also going to be talking about night scented plants to attract in those mothy pollinators.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about this one because I always go on about night scented plants. I just love them.
0: And linked to that, we're going to be doing honeysuckle as our native plant because that is indeed a night scented plant, isn't it? If you've got any questions, send them over to us in the next week or so by Twitter, Facebook or email.
1: Particularly about night-scented plants.
0: And if you do choose to support our GoFundMe page, then thank you very much in advance. And until then, keep gardening and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.